You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you here. Uh, Those of you in person watching online, we are just so blessed to have you. My name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor here at Calvary. And uh, before we jump into God's word, just wanted to make you aware of some schedule things happening. Of course, we're going into Christmas and the New Year's and when Christmas is on a Sunday, things can kind of get crazy. So I just want to make sure everyone knows what's happening so there's no confusion. So this Saturday is Christmas at Calvary. We have two services, four and six o'clock. And uh, hopefully you've been praying for people. When you came in, those of you here in person, there was an invitation card. And we want to encourage you. This isn't for your information. This is for you to invite someone to join you. Uh, what an incredible opportunity Christmas Eve to invite someone to join you at church. Uh, and four and six, both services are identical. We'll be live streaming both of those and uh, we're excited to see what God's gonna do. Uh, December 25th, of course, is a Sunday. There are no services. Enjoy that time with your family and uh, make sure that you make that a special time with uh, those that you love and that you care for. And the following week, which is New Year's Day, uh, we are back to normal schedule with our kids' ministry and service, 10.30 here in the sanctuary, so everything will be back to normal on New Year's Day. So we encourage you to invite someone this Saturday, and we look forward to seeing you in 2023 after that and see what God's gonna do. God has some exciting things planned. Before we move on, though, I wanna pray. Um, And, uh, you know, the cards that you have uh, at your seat are just, it's a piece of paper, um, a shiny piece of paper at that, but uh, it's not anything remarkable but I believe that what, what is represented in that card is really uh, could change someone's life. And I just wanna pray uh, that God would use that. Maybe it's someone in your life, a neighbor or a coworker or a family member or a friend, um, but that God would use that not just to be a piece of paper that you, uh, you know, turn into a, uh, a paper airplane or something, but that God would use it to really impact and affect someone's life because God can do some great things uh, in one moment. This is the God that we serve. He's the God of the supernatural. So would you bow your heads with me as we just pray this morning for those? God, I thank you for the cards that are sitting here, Lord. I know they're just simply uh, cards that are designed and nothing super special about them. But God, I pray that you would use, Lord, these simple pieces of paper to be invitations to something eternal. Lord, something uh, beyond just what's happening now, but but to encounter a God that loves them, a God that sent his son Jesus to this earth, as Pastor Jason said, to die for us, to give his life for us. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. And God, I pray you would help us to, 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 to have an opportunity this week to invite someone to come and see what we have seen, what you have done in us, that you would do in them. I thank you, God, for what you're going to do, what you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Now, I don't know um, kind of what your upbringing was like. I grew up as a pastor's kid, so I've been in church my whole life, really. And, uh, in, in, and maybe you grew up in a religious tradition or a religious setting like I did. And uh, I think uh, a lot of us might be able to identify this, but I was encouraged at a very young age to, uh, to take uh, a moment and pray a prayer of salvation. Um, in my case, I asked Jesus to come in my heart. I was four years old with my dad at my house in Newcastle at the time, and it was such a special moment. Uh, yours might be a little different than that, but I was taught that I needed to ask Jesus to be my savior, and, and for, for parents, that's a really big deal, isn't it? Uh, this was true especially when I was growing up because I needed to make sure that I had a place in heaven. And, and over the years, I've prayed that prayer a number of times. I've heard it prayed a number of times. I've led others in that prayer of salvation a number of times. And now, as a parent myself, I, of course, have done the same thing with my children. 
Um, I've had the amazing privilege to lead my oldest son in that prayer to commit his life to Jesus. And man, it was such a special, amazing moment. And the idea of praying a prayer of salvation is really super important. Making that commitment to Jesus is valuable. And for parents, like, like parents as it related to, to your kids or, or to myself, you know, for me as a parent now, uh, when, when kids wonder, meaning they kind of wander off the path a little bit, and some, some often do, uh, there's something comforting to be able to say, hey, they may be you know, wandering from their faith, but I remember when they were eight or they were 10 or whatever it may be, and they made this decision to put their faith in Jesus. Like there's something incredibly reassuring about that. But the focus of, of all of that is often ultimately on entering into heaven one day, which is really important. And, and I don't regret the decision I made to pray that prayer of salvation. I'm so glad that my parents encouraged me to make that decision as a child. And I'm glad that I'm encouraging my kids to do that as well. But when you follow Jesus' life and his teaching throughout the Gospels, which are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you, when you follow the life of Jesus uh, in those, uh, that, that record of his life, the emphasis that he provided was often very different than that. In the Gospels, Jesus doesn't seem to be talking so much about entering into something or somewhere someday, but he's talking more about participating in something right now. Uh, and, and, and like I said, uh, praying a prayer of salvation is, is important, and I don't want to minimize that in any way, but if we're not careful, we'll reduce Jesus to nothing more than a sin forgiver or a ticket into heaven. When we do that, we end up missing out on Jesus' primary calling for our lives and, and really on our lives, which is to participate in something right now, not something later, like in the future, and what happens is we don't do this on purpose, and, and nobody uh, does this necessarily on purpose, but, but in those moments, we become believers rather than participators. We're believing in something rather than participating in something. We accept this kind of polar express theology or understanding of God that all we have to do is just believe. And, and, and in the first century, the idea of believing and participating weren't, uh, weren't contradictory ideas. They were synonymous uh, the believers participated in, in what we're going to see today, what we're going to talk about today. Be, because first century believers apparently understood something that sometimes we can miss. We've talked about this the last couple weeks, but the birth of Jesus wasn't just about the birth of a Savior, it was about the birth of a king. A king who would actually establish in this life and on this planet an upside down, others first kingdom in the here and now, not in the later a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom of heart, a kingdom that was to move a group of people in every language, every nation, every generation of the world so that there would be a new kind of kingdom ethic instituted and modeled by our king. And here's the interesting thing. This is undeniable. This, is, this isn't just something that we're making up. This is, this is actual history. The people early on in the first century in particular who participated in this kingdom not, not just who believe, but who participate in this kingdom, uh, they are the reason we're still celebrating Christmas today. It's because of them. We talked about this last week, but Caesar Augustus, you know the story, issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. Everybody had to go to their place of birth, which you know, for some people wasn't that difficult. Some of you, you're born and raised in Norwin, and like, this is all you've ever known, and, and, and if that census were issued, like, you would be okay. But then there were others who had to travel. They had to travel to their original place of birth to register, 
And, and the goal was the, the, the empire would know, like, how many people do we have? Where are these people living? What are they doing? And ultimately, what's our tax base? And how can we increase that tax base? Like, it was really a money thing in the end. And, and of course, all this traveling around, as you know, is what set the stage for the first Christmas. It, and the first Christmas wasn't a holiday to relax and enjoy and, and, and be this magical time. It was a time of incredible chaos and struggle. In the midst of this child, uh, this child would be born. And we discovered, as we did last week, that this wasn't just a child. He wasn't just a, another religious figure. And he wasn't just a savior from our sin. He was a king. A king was born into this world. In fact, when the angel told Mary that she was going to give birth to Jesus, uh, he was trying to explain to her, like, you're going to give birth, and this is going to be something unusual. Like, this isn't just another child. This isn't just another person. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 33, uh, he said this, that, that this child would be a king, and his kingdom would never end. His ki- that means his kingdom still is established today. And we can easily reduce Jesus to be nothing more than a religious figure. But, but in the first century, like when this actually happened, when this all transpired in, in, in history, like that wasn't the case. In fact, hundreds of millions of miles, or hundreds of miles, uh, not millions, but hundreds of miles, that would have been like space. We're going into a different, a different passage of scripture here. We're talking about space. No, in fact, hundreds of miles, you know, from, from Bethlehem, there were a group of men that we refer to as the Magi. And they were uh, politically connected, uh, very wealthy, uh, and, and really in touch with what was happening in society at large. Uh, what they did, their job, their hobby, was really to, to look for messages uh, from the gods in the sky. And, and uh, they studied the movement of the planets and the stars. They, 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 uh, we don't know if it was independently or collectively, this group of, of magi, but somehow they identified that there was a brand new star like the something uh, that, that absolutely convinced them that something significant had happened in the world, that, that, that this new star that they discovered signaled that there was the birth of a king and more specifically the birth of a Jewish king. So they decide to go to the logical place to, uh, to meet this brand new baby king which was the, the epicenter of the Jewish world, Jerusalem. And, and they, they start asking on the streets of Jerusalem and the temple and, and, and finding government officials and they're asking everyone like, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Like where, can you tell us where he is? And, and they're asking, assuming that throughout Jerusalem this must be the buzz. Like everyone knows the king, of Jew, uh, the, the king of the Jews has been born. Like they were assuming that, but nobody seems to know what they're talking about. And, and they're like, how can you not know this? Like we saw this star and it rose and we've come to worship him. And, and how do you not know that there's a king that was born in your midst? The problem, of course, was that the Jews already had a king. And when that king, King Herod, heard of this, he was disturbed, and scripture tells us all of Jerusalem was disturbed because the birth of a king could threaten his reign. And, and this was very, very troubling to Herod because he had already worked out a deal with Rome where when he died, the areas that he oversaw, his sons would become kings over those areas. Now, this was ruining his master plan. This was threatening, and he thought that if there was a new king, this was possibly really bad news for the region because the birth of a king could signal civil unrest. The birth of a king could mean civil war. It was certainly a threat to Herod's legacy. Here's what we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter two, verse four. 
He called the religious leaders together. And here's what they said. When he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? He's trying to find out where are they going. As as we talked about last week, Herod uh, interjects this brand new word into this question. The Magi, they were asking where a king was born. But Herod was asking a different question. He had this sneaking suspicion that this child that was born wasn't just a king. So he asked the religious, religious leaders, hey, isn't there something like in the, in the Old Testament, isn't there something in the Jewish scriptures and the prophets that talk about a final king, like God's anointed one? Like that's what the word Messiah means. Herod had this feeling, this wasn't just a king, this was the king. This was God's final king, not anointed by a prophet or a priest, a king that was anointed by God himself. And so he says uh, to them, isn't there something in, in the ancient scriptures about this Messiah and, and where he's supposed to be born? And, and, and the Hebrew term, we talked about this last week, the Hebrew term Messiah uh, translated to the Greek is the word Christ. So we use this word Christ, like Christ uh, uh, wasn't just a name, it's not like Jesus' last name wasn't just a label or a descriptor, and, and Herod understood this. It's a title. It means king. It means God's anointed king. It means God's final king. And, and Herod knew if God had made his move, his kingdom, his role, his legacy, his dynasty were all going to be threatened. And, and they're like, uh, uh, we're glad you asked, the religious leaders say. Like, we know this answer. Like, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. It's like six miles away. It's not that far from Jerusalem. Like, it's really close. Everybody who lived in Jerusalem knew exactly where Bethlehem was. And then uh, they, they quote from the prophet Micah. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, about this birth of a ruler, of this king. It says, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, this is so disturbing to Herod, he gets everyone out of the room. If word gets out, if word gets out that this, that, that this baby king had, had been born and the stars in the sky have proclaimed his birth and if religious leaders go around the city start telling everyone, hey, this is the one the prophet Micah uh, prophesied about. This is the one that the prophet Micah wrote about. Like, this is the one. If that happens, he's ruined. Herod's doomed. So, so Herod calls for another meeting with the Magi. And he does so secretly, and he asks them, tell me, like, when, when did the stars appear? Like, what was the exact time? And, and he's trying to figure out the approximate age of the child, of course. And Herod was a planner. He wasn't just going to sit around and watch everything unfold and kind of unravel. He, he was going to do something about this. So he's like, tell me exactly when you saw the star, because I just want to kind of figure out the approximate age of this little, this, this newborn baby king. And, and here's where our lives intersect with King Herod so clearly. You see, Herod had no problem acknowledging that he had sinned and that at times he broke God's law. In fact, Herod's family had had kind of adopted Judaism. Uh, They they weren't exactly Jewish, but they had this really unusual relationship with Judaism. Uh, Herod was the second, possibly third generation from a family that had embraced Judaism, and now he's the king that rules over the Jewish people. So, so he had no problem going to the temple, making sacrifices for sin. Like, this wasn't something that was weird or odd to him. He had no problem recognizing that Yahweh was God. He had no problem with all the rituals, all the animal sacrifices. In fact, not only did he not have a problem, uh, 
Herod actually helped rebuild the Jewish temple. The temple had been in disrepair, and, and Herod comes along, and he spent some of his own wealth and even raised taxes to build this new temple that would eventually become one of the wonders of the world. Uh, he, he actually built such a beautiful temple that this temple would oftentimes be referred to as Herod's temple. And it replaced the first temple that had been destroyed, which was Solomon's temple. So, so again, he, he's all about like Jew, the Jewish religion. He's all about the rituals. He's all about saying, hey, I've sinned and, and I need God. Like, I'm okay with that. He was good with that. He built the temple. He accepted the idea of this is where heaven can kind of meet earth. Like, this was the epicenter, the temple, of God's presence. He had no problem with any of that. In fact, he invested significantly in all of that himself personally. So the forgiveness of sin, that's one thing. The rituals and the, and the ceremonies, the animal sacrifice, that's, that's another thing. But submitting himself, bowing his knee to another king, never. He would never, ever get to that point. And that's where we find ourselves so often. As long as religion is religion, and my job is my job, and religion is something in heaven, out there somewhere, abstractly. But in the meantime, you know, I'm gonna do what I gotta do. This is how I gotta live my life, and I've gotta make the decisions I have to make. And we find ourselves, like Herod, attempting to conveniently keep heaven and earth separated. Like, God, you stay up there in heaven, do your thing. I'm gonna stay here on earth and do my thing. And you take care of me someday, but I'm gonna keep doing what I need to do today. But on this first day, this first day after Christmas, that option of keeping heaven and earth separated no longer was an option because heaven had come to earth in the form of this baby king, the child king, the one who would establish a kingdom in this world in the hearts of men and women and would invite every person of every generation of every nation to participate in it. So, so Herod, Herod here sends the Magi to Bethlehem. And in Matthew chapter two, verse eight, uh, we read how he said that. He said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. Now, Herod, of course, had no intent of worshiping this child king. And after they heard the king, the Magi did, they, they go on their way. Six miles away, they traveled. We don't know if they had a guide or a map, or however they got there, but everyone pretty much knew where Bethlehem was. They, they traveled to Bethlehem. And the story goes on in the book of Matthew, verse nine. After they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And, and, and we read in, in Matthew's gospel, his account of this, that on coming, not, not to a manger, not to a stable, not to a cave, but on coming to a house because apparently Mary and Joseph had taken up residence now in Bethlehem. They, they maybe were there for weeks or months or years. We, we don't really know. But, but whatever it was, we know that they have moved now into a home. And so it's no longer baby Jesus, but it's like toddler Jesus. Uh, he's, he's a little older, okay? And, and he was maybe, you know, somewhere between six months and a year and a half years, uh, year and a half old, somewhere in that range. And, and when they come to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Listen to this in verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down, they worshiped him. And they, 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 they bowed their knee as they would to a king. And, and they, they bowed down and they worship him as they would to a God because God had become flesh and dwelt among them and to dwell among us what, to, to show us really what God is ultimately like. And, and years later, the Apostle John would try to describe 
this person of Jesus. And here's what he wrote in his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, we have seen his glory, speaking of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And, and like John's trying to describe something he can't put words to. He's like, guys, I, I don't know how to explain this, but this, this little baby that grew into a man whose name was Jesus, like he was different than anyone I'd ever seen before. Like he, he wasn't like a perfect balance or mix of grace and truth. He wasn't like a, 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 a nice, uh, even uh, representation of it. Like he was all grace and all truth. Like we would have some of the most awkward conversations and yet his words would be so penetrating. He, he, he never dumbed down the truth, but he was also uh, never turned down the grace. He was all truth all the time, all grace all the time. He embodied love personified. It's why later as an old man, John tried to describe this epic narrative that he'd had the privilege to experience and live through. He wrote in, in 1 John chapter 4, that the, the, the only way he could describe Jesus, the only way he could put words to this, was to say this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. Like, it, it doesn't do justice, but he didn't know how else to put it into words. Somehow, someone might ask, but, but why would you say that God is love? Like, what leads you to say that? And John might respond, because I gazed into the eyes of love. And when I gazed in the eyes of my rabbi, and I, I, I don't know how to put words to this or how else to say this, but it's as if God inhabited a body. And it was so unique. Why? Because heaven had come to earth and the two were one. God sent a king who would reverse the order of all things. A kingdom that was established as an other's first kingdom. A kingdom where the, the men and the women, the people that had the most power and their most resources would leverage that power and resources for those that don't have the power, that don't have the resources. Everything about it was backwards. Everything about it was upside down, but then so was the rabbi, so was this king. Now back to the story in verse 12 of Matthew 2. We read, and having been warned, speaking of the magic, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. The angel would also warn Joseph as well that Herod wanted to murder this child king. So when Herod realizes that he's been outwitted by these magi, he's furious. He's livid that they tricked him. And if you read the Christmas story, if you're reading it as a story and you're, you're reading this and like, man, this is going to be the happy ending, like it's going to be awesome, it's going to be magical, it's going to be wonderful, this part of the story doesn't seem to fit. It's like, why would you ruin this wonderful story of Christmas? Like this Jesus is born in a manger and like people are bringing gifts and they're worshiping, like this is awesome. And, and then the story kind of takes a weird turn with what happens next. The, ans the answer is, why, like why would anyone do this? It's because... Why, why would this be part of the story? Because this isn't the Christmas story. This is the story of the birth of a king. And even in the beginning, even at the start, the kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of God would be in conflict. And they would always be in conflict because God sent his son, this king, into the world to establish a different kind of kingdom, a new kingdom. And so Herod gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem. I could just hear how this conversation would go with some of his, his, his soldiers and his subjects. You know, your, your highness, you know, uh, before we go, 
are you sure you want to kill all the boys in Bethlehem? And he's like, no, no, not, not just Bethlehem, like the entire vicinity. But, but sir, that's a lot of children. And, and he'd respond, no, two years old and under, just to be safe, just to be sure. That's, that's the best guess of what I've, I've, I've been told and what I've learned. But, but sir, you want us to execute all of those children? And he's like, yeah, that's what I said. Kill them all. This is the tragic, un, un, unnecessary seemingly part of the Christmas story that we miss. Like, how could this happen? Like, so many good things were happening, and why this? And here's why. You know, bad things have been happening to good people, innocent people, for a very long time, ever since sin entered the world. And even in the Christmas story, even the story of Jesus' birth, it's here. And here's something I think is important to mention. Maybe, maybe for you today, this message is for you. Like, maybe this is something that you need to hear, that our faith, our, our Christian faith does not require us to look away from the cruelty, the injustice, and the suffering in our world because it's part of the story. It's baked into the story. It's woven into the very fabric of the human story from the beginning, the moment sin entered the world. And maybe you've heard this before, but at the end of the earthly life of Jesus, the worst possible thing happens to the best possible person. That's the story of Jesus. That's what we read in the Gospels. It's not just this happy ending where everything's just magical. Like there's some seriously bad stuff. In fact, not only are we not to look away as followers of Jesus, we're required and encouraged to look at the cruelty and the injustice and the suffering of this world because it's a reminder to us of why God sent his son, why he didn't just send someone to save us from our sin. Instead, he sent a king to lead us and to instruct us in a different way of living. This is the reason we have Christmas today. And so Herod refuses. He refuses to bow his knee to this child king. If only he knew, if only he knew that his life, Herod's life and legacy would be only a footnote in the story of this child king. And God had seemingly brought about the birth of this king, Jesus, so secretly. If it hadn't been for the Magi who kind of messed the whole thing up by arriving in Jerusalem and getting Herod's attention, and if it wasn't for them, no one except maybe Mary and Joseph and a handful of others would have even known this significant event had happened, and they certainly wouldn't have known of the royal implications of his birth. But because it did become public, it became very, very dangerous to raise a little baby Jesus, and eventually toddler, and middle school Jesus and high school. It became very dangerous to raise Jesus in this region. In fact, here's uh, what, what history tells us. It would be almost 40 years after his birth before the world outside Palestine, outside Israel, that, that the Gentiles in particular, the Greeks and Romans, those outside of Israel, would, become, would come to understand and grasp the tension and the reality of what had taken place with his birth. That God had sent a king into the world. And because of the arrival of Jesus, there became this natural tension between the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of God. And it would be almost 40 years, 40 years of days after Christmas before anyone became more aware of this and it became more clear. One of the most clarifying moments 
happened about 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria, in, the, in, the, in this huge, amazing city of Antioch. And Antioch was one of the three largest and wealthiest cities in all of the Roman Empire. And in the city of Antioch, a new term had been coined by the residents of that city. It was a response to what, uh, what was seen as a new political movement. Not a religious movement, but a political movement where Greeks and Romans were choosing to follow and give allegiance to a brand new king. They referred to this new, this new king as their Christos, or, or their anointed one. And, and this was disturbing on so many levels, primarily because this king that they were swearing allegiance to had been crucified 10 or 12 years earlier by the Romans. And now, not only are they swearing allegiance to him as their king, they're saying he's their God. But unlike all the pagan gods, this God, this God king, didn't require them to offer blood sacrifices. In fact, the people who followed this God king said that he came to this earth to be the final sacrifice. And specifically, not, not just like a good luck charm sacrifice, but, but like the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He was the king who required something more than sacrifices. And it's important to understand that in the first century, the pagan gods, they didn't really care how you behaved. All you had to do to practice these pagan religions was offer the right blood sacrifices. If you did that, like everything else is fine. Like you can do whatever you want, live however you want, be obsessed with yourself, selfish, you know, live a, a life that's, that's horrible and, and, and lacks integrity and has no morale. Like you can do all of that. It, it was okay as long as you offer the blood sacrifices. That's how the pagan gods worked. That's how that system worked. And on top of that, Rome, Rome also didn't care who you worshipped. You could worship your ancestors. You could worship your your, your tribal deities, you could worship anyone you want. I mean, the Roman Empire was big and diverse. And in fact, their motto went something like this, like, to all the people of the empire, like, worship your gods, but obey Caesar. Like, worship whoever you want, whatever you want. Just make sure you obey Caesar. Worship your God. We don't care, like, who you worship. We don't care who you sacrifice to. We don't care what their names are or even how many gods you have. It's okay. You're, you worship your gods, but at the end of the day, you better obey Caesar. You need to swear allegiance to him. He's to the Caesar. But in Antioch, there was this group of Greeks and Romans that this wasn't working for anymore because the divine and the secular had collided. Heaven and earth had collided. They had come together in this person of a Jewish rabbi who they swore was a king. And here's the thing we can miss. The citizens of Antioch weren't simply changing religions. The citizens of Antioch weren't changing their, they were changing their allegiance to a king who invited them to a different way of life, an other's way of living. It's, it's why we call this an upside down kingdom. It was so upside down that the followers of this new king, they would actually give to people and not expect anything in return. They would loan and, and not expect people to return the favor. And in fact, they would give to others and loan to people who they knew couldn't even return the favor. And they would do all of this on purpose, intentionally. They considered it a virtue. They would even bind themselves by an oath not to commit fraud or theft or adultery. They would bind themselves to an oath to carry one another's burdens. They bound themselves to an oath to forgive the people that offended them and, and the people that harmed them. It was so strange at this time. And instead of going to a temple and sacrificing an animal 
to gain the favor of their God, they would get up on the first day of the week before work, because the first day of the week was a work day then, and they would get up on that first day of the week before the sun rose, and they would meet in gardens and in homes, and instead of offering a sacrifice to their God king, they would actually sing songs of gratitude for the fact that they no longer had to make sacrifices because their God king, Jesus, was the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice for their sin. And the other thing, and this isn't to be ignored, it was so incredibly disrupting. They ignored the, the societal structures and distinctives of that time, like the order of things. There, there was a caste system, and, 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 and you were in different places in society, and, and the, the, the economic and socioeconomic statuses. And, and it's as if they didn't pay attention to any of that. Like, there were no Jews or Gentiles in their midst. They were just brothers and sisters. It, it wasn't uh, male or female in their hierarchy. Like, men had to be here and women could only be here. Like, they were just uh, 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 brothers and sisters. They, they weren't slaves and free. They actually called each other these familial names like brother and sister. Slave owners would refer to their slaves as brothers and sisters. The wealthy would refer to the poor as brothers and sisters. It was so incredibly disruptive to society. Like, it broke the order of things. In fact, one of the le their leaders, an ex-fisherman named Peter, had actually written a letter where he would say that as followers of this new king, they are now joint heirs of his kingdom. Joint heirs. And most surprising of all is that this new movement following this resurrected king, that they were insistent that their king instructed them to submit to current governing authorities because that's what their king had done. He had submitted to the current governing authorities himself. When he was arrested, instead of fighting, he surrendered. When, when he was arrested, instead of rallying his followers, they all mostly betrayed him and he gave himself over to his enemies. And God miraculously raised him from the dead. And they followed that example and they submitted to the governing authorities. It was mind-blowing. This was not a religion, though. This was a revolution. The problem was that, what do you call these people? They, they called themselves believers, or, or sometimes they call themselves disciples, which is you know, another name for maybe a learner or a teacher or, or, or a, a student. But what would you, what would, what would everyone else call these people? And so Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and also wrote the book of Acts, he mentions that in this flourishing large city of Antioch, this name was finally given to these disciples. And here's what... He said these disciples or followers of Jesus were called. And more accurately, accurately, in this city of Antioch, this is the first place that people were accused of being what we call Christians. In Acts 11, verse 26, it says, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And, and, and this, this term in that culture, in that context, meant a partisan of the Christ or someone uh, of the political party of the, of the Christ. They weren't branded Christians to differentiate them from the pagan religions of that day. That was a, a distinction uh, of political terminology. It, it was very similar to other words used to describe who someone followed. For example, you could be a, a, a Caesarean, meaning you followed Ces, uh, Caesar, or, or a Herodian, meaning you followed Herod, or a Christian, someone who followed the Christos, the Christ. In, in fact, to be a Christian in the Roman Empire would eventually become a crime. Not because of what they believed, but because of who they were following. It seemed so anti-Roman. 
They were persecuted, not because of, of their belief system. They were persecuted because of the one they chose to obey and to follow. Herod understood this and chose to resist. The Magi saw this coming and they chose to worship. And, and these amazing people in Antioch, Greeks and Roman citizens, heard the message of this good news and they understood it and they embraced it. And, and they didn't just believe, they followed it and participated in it. You see, Jesus was not just a forgiver of sins. For them, Jesus wasn't some religious icon. He was a king. He was their king. He was the intersection of heaven and earth. He was God personified. And to the question they would ask you or ask me, the question that we should ask ourselves in this season, that we should ask ourselves every morning, we talked about this last week, is, is he your king? Is he my king? Like he is the king, but is he our king? And don't miss this. Forgiven people never changed the world. Forgiven people didn't change the world. The forgivers changed the world. The followers changed the world. The people who chose to participate in this life, in this kingdom of God, these are the ones that shaped Western civilization as we know it today. They elevated the value of women. They elevated the value of the poor and the importance of serving the poor. They elevated the value of children in society. They changed the world. They changed the value system of the world because they began to understand that we're all brothers and sisters. And at the foot of the cross, everything is equal and everything is level. And whatever God has placed in my hands, he places in my hands to be a good steward of for the benefit of the people around me. And the world began to change. And, and we often say it this way here at Calvary, that we are blessed to be a blessing. And, and these early followers of Jesus that followed this king got it. They, they got it and they, they lived it out. These were men and women who had a holy discontent with the way the world was and decided to follow Jesus, to embrace the virtues and the values and the ethics of Jesus, and to ultimately change the world around them. And wherever these little communities of Christians, of, of these followers of Jesus, wherever they would reside or wherever they would call home, you can see throughout history that that part of the world would become a better place. That part of the world would become a safer place. Why? Because there was a group of people that embraced the kingdom of God as illustrated, as personified in the person of Jesus. And if you want to make America or our community or this county better? Or, or, or ask it the way Jesus asked his disciples one day on the way to Jerusalem. Do you guys want to be great? Do you want to be the light of your world? Do you want to leave a legacy? Well, the only way you'll make a difference in this world, the only way our, our region, our community, our, our county, our country can become better, the only way is by participating in something that is not of this world, but something that is for this world. He was telling his disciples that, that when, when, when he showed up, he ultimately came to unleash and launch a kingdom ethic, a different way of living. And the challenge for me, as the worship team comes today, the challenge for me, the challenge for you, is are you willing to do what the people of Antioch did? Are, are we willing 
to shift our allegiance? Are we willing to shift our ultimate allegiance and submit to the king who came to reverse the order of all things? To submit to the king who said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love each other just as I have loved you. Are we willing to live our lives that way? John again, Apostle John who at this point was a very old man. He's trying to sum up all, uh, all, all that he experienced, all that he lived out, how he had seen everything. Imagine this moment. Like John, uh, we see in scripture, uh, when Jesus was hanging on the cross to be crucified, John is standing with his arm around the, the mother of Jesus, Mary. He's consoling her. And, 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 and church history tells us that, that John would take care of Mary all the way to, to, to her death. And now as an old man, John's trying to sum up his whole experience of Jesus and caring for Mary and, and, and all that he experienced in this person of Jesus. And as he's trying to, to sum up this incredible journey that he's been on, knowing that he, he might not have too many years left, here's what he writes. He says, I know this isn't going to make much sense, but it's the only way I can describe it. It's recorded in John 1, verse 4 and 5. He says of Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That, that life was literally the light of the entire human race, even though it was just one body, one person. Those eyes, that posture, those words, that conviction, that confidence, that humility, it's so hard to describe, but in that one body, was the light of the world. And that light now shines in the darkness. And understand that when John wrote those words, the world was a very dark place, very dark. By this time, it's very possible that both the apostle Peter and Paul were executed in Nero's Rome, which was a very violent time in Rome. We don't know for sure, but around this time that this was written, Jerusalem was perhaps surrounded by the 10th legion, which would eventually burn the temple to the ground all the way to its foundation. We don't know the order of all of this, but it was around that time. And it's, it's, it's easy to understand. This was not a safe time. This was not a good time. This was a very dark time. And yet John's time with Jesus, his memories, his experiences, in him was life and that life was the light of the entire human race. The light shines in the darkness and even in all the darkness, even in the darkness of our world today, it has not overcome it. And it, and it, and it didn't just happen then. It, 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 didn't, it didn't overcome, the darkness didn't overcome the light then and it doesn't overcome it now and it will never overcome the light. The day after Christmas, on that first day after Christmas, Christmas wasn't over. Christmas was just beginning. The story of what Christmas meant, the birth of a king, was just beginning. The king had been secretly brought into this world. Your king, my king. But practically speaking, is he your king? Is he my king? He's the king who has invited you. He won't force you. But he has invited you to participate in something right now. He has invited you to change your allegiance, to bow, to submit, to follow, and to participate in his kingdom. The kingdom of God has come to earth. So this Christmas, we celebrate the birth of this king. His name is Jesus. The question, is he your king? Are you willing to participate? 
in this everlasting, never ending, everlasting kingdom of God that he established. It's not just about gathering in church, which is such a wonderful time to worship. And, to, and man, today is such an incredible sense of worship in this place. Like, it's not just about that. That's part of it. But are you living out the kingdom tomorrow? Because every day is the day after Christmas. Every day, every Monday, every Tuesday is the day after Christmas where Jesus has accomplished his work. Now are we gonna live our lives in the context of what he has done? Are we gonna keep heaven and earth separate? God, it's just a religious thing. Like I go there, on, I go to church on Sundays, I do my thing, I can do whatever I want over here. But that's not the kingdom that Jesus established, that our king established. He asked us to follow him, to submit to him, to follow his leading, to live our lives with the ethic and the values that he has established. And throughout this week, I want you to ask this question of yourself. At, at work, at home, wherever you go, how are you living out the values and ethics of Jesus every day and every moment? That's what it means to follow a king. Not just when it's convenient. You do it whenever it's asked of you because he is our king. That's how we establish a kingdom here on earth. Not a kingdom bound by physical boundaries. A kingdom that the only boundaries are where the love of God can go. And he wants to take that through you to the world outside these walls. So as we pray this morning, I wanna pray that God wouldn't just use a simple card, but that God would use your life, your words. God would use you to draw people to himself. That God would use you to show people of this Jesus, this kingdom of God that he came to establish through Christmas. Because I know Christmas is just a seven days away, but every day is the day after Christmas. Every day we get to live our lives in the context of what he started that night and what he came to do, as we talked about, as Pastor Jason talked about earlier, he came to die and to rise again, to conquer it all. We live our lives in the context of that. If we can live our lives in the context of that, we can see the supernatural, the impossible. We can see the world turned upside down. That even in the midst of darkness, that darkness cannot overcome it because he is the light that overcomes the darkness. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, for your life. I thank you, Lord, for scripture. God, for the record of your life, your birth, your death, your resurrection. Lord, I thank you for scripture, Lord, that gives us well, it's such a clear picture of why you came and what you came to do. God, I pray you would help us to not get stuck in a religious rut where what we do is just about what we do, but Lord, it becomes about how we can be transformed and how we can transform the world around us. God, that we're not just believers, but we're participators. Let us participate, Lord, in what you are doing throughout this world. God, I pray throughout this week as we walk toward Christmas, Lord, let us, Lord, let us take the message of Jesus to our workplaces and our neighborhoods, everywhere we go, Lord, that we can introduce people to the values and ethics of Jesus in this kingdom. Holy Spirit, bless us, empower us, equip us to represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is Pastor Nick Pohl, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. 
At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.